0: Uh, our grow nights uh, just just with a song, uh, just with a hymn, and that's why you see those hymnals in front of you. And before we we do that, uh, I do want to hit on some announcements. Pray for us, and then we'll do our uh, sing, have a Bible study, and then we have several things we want to pray for tonight. I've uh, got a lot of things going on out there we want to pray for, and uh, but far some of announcements for you going on. Obviously, um, number one, one of the big things we. Father, we love you and uh, we rejoice that we can have the opportunity to pause in the middle of the week during work and, and school and just the busyness of life and just to pause for an hour and to worship you, to to sing songs to your glory, to hear your scripture um, explained and, and taught. Father, we praise you for that. So, Lord, we ask that you would be with us tonight. Fill us with your spirit. Instruct us and lead us in all things. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Brother. sometime, but that's okay because we still had jobs, right? We still had power, so to speak. We still had running water and food and we weren't in jail over over Jesus Christ. So what the writer of Hebrews wants to do in this letter is to spur them on to perseverance, to persevere to the end. And how he does that through this letter, if you remember, there's three things he's been doing. One is through exhortation, Another method is through instruction, okay? Um, Who Jesus is in comparison. um, We see to Moses and to angels that Jesus is better. And the third method that he's using um, is warning. He gives us warning passages like we see in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 and Hebrews chapter 2 as well. We see warning passages. He uses all these different methods to help them persevere to the end And the big thing that he's doing in all of this, if I could sort of sum it up how he wants to do this, is simply show us, and I say simply show us, he goes to great means through this letter, but it is a simple premise, Jesus is just better than all of that. Jesus is better than the, the human Levitical sacrificial system. He, he's better than the animals. He's better than the priesthood. He's, he's just better than all of that. And he shows how he fulfills all of that. Okay? So we've been going through all of that for some time. And I, and I do want to say I appreciate your patience. But I also hope that you see why it's so important sometimes to slow down. And, and let's go verse by verse. right? Let, let's, let's figure some things out. And hopefully you have seen... Why we as Baptists, specifically, we're in chapter eight. What we, how we view the new covenant. Why we believe in regenerate church membership. That there, there's a there's a particular belief that we have about that. That members of the new covenant are regenerate, and so hopefully you've seen those things, have appreciated those things, and and continue to want to learn some of that. So we found ourselves last time we're together, starting in chapter nine. We're in a huge section, chapter 9 to verse 1, all the way to verse 18 of chapter 10 is where the author now is showing that Jesus is a better sacrifice under the new covenant. Okay, so that's the big umbrella that we're in now. From the beginning of chapter 9 all the way to verse 18 of chapter 10. So if you remember, the beginning of chapter 9, we looked at that free access to God was not granted under the old covenant. We looked at the tabernacle and the temple and all the furniture, and we saw all these things that you had to do to get to God. And guess what? Could anyone and everyone just go in the temple and go in the Holy of Holies and just see God when they wanted to? Couldn't do it, right? Only how many? One. And how often could he do that? Once a year. Okay. So the tabernacle, how it's designed, even shows there was no just open access to the throne of God at that time. So the writer shows that. He also shows that Jesus, in verses 11 through 14, Jesus has entered for us that, 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 that heavenly tabernacle, uh, the, the, the true tabernacle, uh, offering up his blood as the high priest. So because of that, under the old covenant, we didn't have free access. But in Jesus and his blood in the new covenant, we have free access, right? The veil is torn, sin has been paid for, you and I um, at home, Sitting on our couch with our Bibles, in a, a pastoral study, in your car, wherever you find yourself, you and I, Jesus as our mediator, as our intercessor, a high priest, we come in the name of Jesus. And guess what? We we we're in the presence of the Father. We have to pray. And, and Jesus intercedes for us, and the Spirit works in us as well. And so we see that Jesus entered heaven, okay, with, with his blood, offered himself so that we could have eternal redemption. And then the last time we are together, from verses 11 to 14, it shows, and this is where the red heifer came in, but through the blood of the animals and the ashes of the heifer, as they temporarily cleansed people in the Old Testament, okay, to be in the presence of God, Jesus, they all pointed to Jesus, where Jesus' blood, greater work, cleanses us from our sin, and there's a specific term we use too, from dead works, so that we could have a clear what? Conscience. See, remember, the Old Testament sacrifices would cleanse, but it would be an external cleansing, right? The ashes of the red heifer could not give you a new heart. Couldn't do it. It would cleanse you from touching a dead body, and you would no longer be defiled, and you could, you could go to the temple and you could do those things, but it couldn't change the heart of the man or the woman that it did. But this sacrifice of Jesus Christ and shedding His blood, there's an internal cleansing where your conscience is now clean. You are forgiven, you're washed clean. And you're, and, you're, and you're forgiven of dead works. So this is why in verse 15 it says, For this reason, or some translations say, therefore. But for all of this, all that I just said about Jesus, that's a lot. For all of that, this is, this is what he wants to say. This is a summary statement. Verse 15 is a summary statement and a thesis that's going to help us move forward in his thought. Okay, So he's going to sum up his thought, preparing us for another thought. How is he going to do that? Let's look at it real quick. For this reason, he, obviously being Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. So, so let's talk a little bit about this statement he's saying, this, this summary type of statement that leads to somewhat of a thesis statement. But number one, because all of his blood, the working, him, let me rephrase that. Not, I'm not talking about buckets of blood, but his sacrifice and the shedding of his blood, he has been what? He is now a mediator ...of the new covenant, okay? So that's going to matter here in a moment. I'm, I'm going to talk about Moses here in a little bit. So he's a mediator. And we know how mediators work, right? Especially in the covenants we're going to see here in a moment. But as a person between two parties. And when we see the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant, or you could say the old covenant and new covenant, there is a mediator involved in those covenants. One was Moses, this one's is Jesus. It says, so that, so here, here's the second part. So there's a, he's a mediator of a new covenant. Then we also see, right, since the death has taken place for the redemption of transgressions that were committed, right? So, he's a mediator of a new covenant. A death has taken place. What does that mean? He became the mediator of a new covenant by the means of death. Okay? Remember these things because he's about to expound upon it in the next verses. So, Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant. He does so by the means of a death okay and you could put in brackets beside that the shedding of blood okay this is this is what we're we're going to be looking at the third thing in verse 15 why does he do all this for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant so here's the third thing he's the mediator of the new covenant he becomes the mediator for us and and seals it for us to have the new covenant by his death you remember one of the words that we looked at Sundays, we did the Lord's Supper? You all remember that, that cup that's, that's offered up and, and it represents what? His blood, all right, for the new covenant. This is the this, this same thing. Thirdly, is for what? For the redemption of the transgressions that were committed. And look at this, all right, under the first covenant, okay? Now, this first covenant is the same language and terminology as old covenant. We would say Old Covenant, but he's pointing back to the Mosaic Covenant. So here's a theological thing we need to discuss. How were Old Testament saints saved? How were Old Testament saints made right, or let me use a biblical word, how were Old Testament saints justified before God? That's a question we need to ponder, right? And And let... And as we expound upon this, the reason that it's important is because if we start coming up, looking back to the Old Testament, and we start pointing to works and other things outside of the saving work of Jesus Christ, guess how many ways of salvation that you just came up with? Two. Two. Right? And we know Jesus exclusively is the only one that can save a sinner. Our justification and the grounds of your justification is not your good works. The grounds of your justification is not even faith. The grounds of justification is the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. His death, His burial, and His resurrection. That is our righteousness. Okay. So so what do we do with that? Well, let's be good Bible students, right? Let's turn over for a moment. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. Because what we want to ask are the transgressions of those under the first covenant. So let's think some examples of people under the first covenant. One that Paul, too, that Paul loves to use time and time again uh, for us. He does this in Galatians. He does this in Romans that we're about to read. Is a patriarch and a king. The patriarch is Abraham. The king is King David. So he wants to use Old Testament examples to teach us Abraham was saved by faith alone and Christ alone. Good, I'm glad it's not controversial because you'd be surprised. Some people would be like, uh. David is saved, justified by faith alone in Christ alone. When you hear me say that Jesus was not plan B, but he's the plan, that's what we mean. Okay. Abraham entered into heaven, was made righteous, imputed righteousness, imputed to him because of Christ. Okay, not because of animals not because of Levitical code or Levitical system, all right? None of those things. So so let's talk about that. Let's look at some Scripture. So let's go to Romans chapter 3. I know you're there. Romans chapter 3, go to verse 25 and 26. This is going to set us up for some other things we're going to look at. Let's go to verse 24, excuse me. Being justified, there's that word, freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, okay? That's pretty much what you just said, right? Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, justification. Verse twenty-five: Whom God sent forth as a propitiation by His blood, through faith. Now, now, hear these next phrases, these words, to demonstrate His righteousness. So God demonstrates His righteousness through the penalty paid at the cross through the blood of Jesus. How how does the cross demonstrate when Jesus is dying for our sins? How does that demonstrate God's righteousness? What What would you say to that? I like to. Now, y'all could talk about a red heifer with Mark, and I'll ask a question. No, it's just okay. All right, but. No. Okay, Jesus was righteous. Okay, so think about it. Jesus is dying in our place to pay for what our sin, and there is the judgment of God. That God is just upon sin. So if God is just, that shows that He is righteous. That He is right in in His being, His morality, all that. So it says that He may demonstrate His righteousness. God upon the cross not only shows His love, but hear this. It also shows that God is holy and just and He is righteous. He does answer sin. Okay, We see that at the cross. Okay? Now, let's move on, to the, still in the same text, verse 25. Because, read this, in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Well, wait a minute, preacher. Did you just say, did you not just say that Christ answered? And that's the point Paul's making. It's because you've got to ask about this. Was Abraham perfect? Did Abraham sin? You remember he went into a town and lied about his wife being his sister? David. Was David a sinner? Everybody's like, oh boy, right? Right. We read Psalm 51. We see his confession of sin. We see all of that. So, what if the animals couldn't atone for that sin and Jesus hasn't come yet, then wh- then how, how are they in Abraham's bosom as it's called in heaven? How does that take place? Well, the text tells you. What does it say that God did? His forbearance. God passed over the sins. It does not mean he... Forgot them, all right it doesn't mean that there's some other means of paying for sin, and God just throws it away. Watch this that were previously committed now look at this in verse twenty six to demonstrate at the present time, so you see the contrast there are sins that were previously committed in the past well what what what's going to happen with Abraham's sin and David's sin to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So let me explain it this way. This is the power of the cross. Abraham, and we're going to see here in a minute too, Abraham, David, Jesus at the cross. God had forbearance, right? Jesus goes to the cross not only to, to, to die for our sin as the bride of Christ, but do you know who else is part of the bride of Christ? Abraham. And David and those men? And so guess what Jesus does on the cross? Even though David is dead, even though uh, Abraham is dead, what does God, what does Jesus do with their sin? He atones for it. He atones for it. So, so let me say it this way. And we're going to see this in a moment in, in Romans again. Abraham and David place their faith in a coming Messiah. You and I place our faith in a Messiah who has come. So let's put the cross here, if I may use a visual illustration. They put their faith in a coming Messiah. We place our faith in Messiah who has come. But guess what? Both are faith in Christ alone. Okay? The timing of Christ's death, yes, it's important. But when it comes to salvation today before God, it atoned for Abraham and David's sin. David was a murderer, right? Adulterer. Christ atoned for those sins. He paid for David's sin. James, I have lied. I have lusted, I have envied, I have, I, have, I have an outburst of wrath in my life I there's all these things Christ atoned for my sin, even though what two thousand years ago, okay all that so when we look to the Bible, the Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, they are saved by the same means, Jesus Christ and Christ alone. okay Abraham and David were not saved by a different method or different means. And then God got frustrated and said, let's go to plan B. Christ, will you run down there? How do we know that? How do we know that Jesus is not plan B? Genesis chapter 3. Right? What, what, what does God say? In the beginning, and then in the garden, speaking to Satan, his en- the enemy. I'm going to crush your head. How are you going to do that? Then we get into 1 Peter, and it says, Before the foundations of the world, the lamb was slaughtered. The lamb was sacrificed. We also see a couple other things. You remember in the scriptures where um, Jesus is having these, these, these wonderful discussions. I call them discussions, but they're really sparring moments, debates with Pharisees and, and people around him. He's teaching. And um, he, he tells them that his father is Abraham, if you remember that, right? I'm a father Abraham, and you're of the devil. Your father's the devil. And, and they're looking at him like, you're not over 50 years old. Why? Why are you saying these things? And he makes this statement where they literally want to kill him. If you remember, he says, "Before Abraham was, well, Abraham saw my day. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced." They said, "What? You're not over fifty years old. How's that happen?" And he says, "Before Abraham was, I am." Okay, but what did he say about Abraham? Did Abraham see everything fully and perfectly? But Abraham saw the day of the Messiah coming, and he rejoiced. So, Romans continues to expound this for us. And I know I'm camping out here a little bit, because I want us to understand the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Okay, So, so what do we do with that? Jump down to chapter 4 right there in Romans. What then shall we say that Abraham our father was found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You catching that? Abraham didn't work for it. He believed God and righteousness was imputed. All right. He goes on to say, go to verse five. Okay, that's Abraham. What about David? But to him, verse four, 5, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. All right? Faith alone, Christ alone. Verse 6, Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And here, here listen to this, we quote the psalmist. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the circumcision, not circumcised only, Jew and Gentile. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Okay? Now there's, there's so much more, and I know I'm reading this really fast. <laughs> Romans would take, I'm 41, it'd probably take me to about 55 to preach all through Romans the way I like to. Um, but what we see here, when he talks about in this text here in Hebrews, a death is taking place, right, as a mediator. And he's also saying for the redemption, the transgressions that were committed on the first covenant. Why is this important? What where, These people who want to, to leave the Christian faith, who want to go back, where do they want to go back under? The old covenant, right? Did the old covenant redeem the sins of the people on the first covenant? No. No, so there's. Look what he's implying here: to abandon this covenant, you don't have sins atoned for. Only through Christ, the mediator, are sins atoned for, even those in the un, un, old covenant. He's even saying Abraham and David, they're what by faith alone, Christ. Alone. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll expand upon that another time more more. But I I wanted to hit that. So it's the fourth thing here. So those, okay, right here. That excuse me. All right. For those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. So catch this. It's, it's, it's like, go back. Those sins have been redeemed. And for those who have been called, okay? So all of those who have been called now, that effectual call, of the Holy Spirit to, to regenerate them, have been called, effectually called. They come to Christ, okay? Uh, they have faith. They have repentance out of that new heart of flesh so that they may receive the promise of what is it called the internal inheritance now what's interesting here in hebrews let's let's go back to hebrews for a moment he calls it the promise of the internal inheritance that's an inheritance that is forever first peter talks about that it's incorruptible it can't be touched by time nor sin can't be touched moth robbers nothing can touch it right but we also see here what's interesting he says in verse 14 earlier How much more shall the blood of Christ, through whom the eternal Spirit offered himself? Now what he's saying is those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So there's a little bit of a theme here, the word eternal, eternal. Okay, But he wants us to understand that through Christ, as a mediator of a new covenant, through the means of death, not only redeem the sins of those in the first covenant, but also that those who have been called will have what? An eternal inheritance as well. Okay? This is a summary-type statement, and he's moving moving forward with it. There, there is jam-packed, a massive amount of stuff in this one verse. Matter of fact, one of my favorite theologians, uh, John Owen, has like 500 pages almost on just one or two verses concerning this. But don't worry, I'm not at all going to be doing that. So. So, so what do we do with that? I would argue from verses sixteen, sort of on to the rest of the chapter, but verses sixteen to twenty-two, he's going to expound on a couple of things for them to understand. Okay, because that's a lot. That's four things in one verse. Okay, now that's a lot, right? To unpack. So let's look at something specifically through the rest of the text in verse sixteen and seventeen. He's going to use an analogy. Okay, he's going to use an illustration, and and he uses the word here in the NASB. They use the word covenant. But some of you y'all may say will or testament, okay? So why is Jesus the mediator of a new covenant? Why is the new covenant in effect for us? We says for when there is a, and I'm going to highlight this, a covenant, there must be the necessity uh, to be a death of the one who made it. Verse 17, for when a covenant, and, and, and in your notes you can put a testament or a will, and I'm going to explain what I mean, is valid only when men are dead or if it's never enforced while the one who made it lives. So, so you're saying, why did Jesus have to die? And what he is saying here, he's using an example that we all understand. So you have an inheritance, right? There's an eternal inheritance. And let's say your mom, dad, they, they have land, they have money, they have things. And when they pass away, you get before the attorney. And what do they read? It's the reading of the, the will. That will only takes effect while they're alive or when they pass away have to pass away. Okay, So what he's saying here, we understand there are certain something like a contract but wills and testament that only take effect when death happens. Okay, A death has to happen. That's what he's saying in verse 16 and 17. It's an analogy. Okay, um, It's an example that we understand we shouldn't be surprised if there was a death with the new covenant. And he's going to show us here in a minute biblically in the Old Testament. So we understand that that a death has to take place. So he shows here death takes place, okay? We see it in verse 16 and 17, all right? That a death is necessary, and it's the same of the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant, a death took place. I'm going to show you here what it was. And in the new covenant, a death took place, okay? So we'll move up. So we're in verse 18 now. Let's move up. I say move up, but move over or down for you guys verse 18. Here we go, verse 18. Therefore, okay, what has to happen? Even the first covenant, and remember at the very top, what's the first covenant in this text refer to? The old covenant, right? Mosaic covenant, okay. Was not inaugurated without blood. So, one of the things we need to remember when we read Hebrews, and it says with blood or without blood, it also means death. Okay, something has died. It's telling you something has died. The shedding of blood doesn't mean, like Jesus on the cross, it doesn't, need, doesn't mean he only needed to shed two quarts of blood, right? What, what we see, the shedding of the blood is also representative of someone has died. Something has died, okay? Like you see in Old Testament sacrifices as well. So take your Bible again as good Bible students, and let's go look at Exodus 24 for a second. Because he makes this argument the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood okay well let's well let's see you make this statement let's see if it can be backed up exodus 24 Let me get there so just real quick for a time that we got him try to we we know uh the initial mosaic covenant the initial I say covenant going up he 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 gets the stone tablets As this is happening, they they make an idol, a golden calf. God says, you better go get them. (laughs) Um, I'm going to kill them. You better go get them. Moses gets down there, halfway down. Moses sees all this. He's starting to notice everything. He's holding the tablets. And what happens? Is he excited? No, he gets angry. He he hears the cheering. He hears the celebration, the party, right? And he casts them down. They're broken. Then we see what happens after that, right? This, it's when the showdown happens, All right. The law, he gives other law responsibilities, tells Moses about it. But anyway, so they're afraid. So let's go to let's go to Exodus 24 and, and let's read something specifically, okay? Let's go to, let's start in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 8 and we'll stop. He, God, said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Those names are important. They come up to the Lord even now. to the mountain, later on those two guys, God kills in Leviticus 10. And 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. So Moses alone shall come near the Lord. They shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words uh, of the Lord and all the judgments. All the people answered with one voice. And hear this, all the words which the Lord has said, what's the response? We will what? Do. Okay. Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Then Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. All right? So half that blood of those animals is in basins. And half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So he sacrificed all these animals. So he gets the blood here, puts it in basins. He gets blood here and puts it in basins. he takes that blood and he sprinkles it on the altar. That's important to remember, okay? Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant. That's the two tablets, okay? That, this is the book of the covenant, okay? The, the Mosaic covenant, the law here. Reading it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has said we will do, and then they even emphasize it more, and what? Be obedient, Okay. This is the Old Covenant. Did we not just read in Hebrews? It has to be inaugurated. It has to be, how is it inaugurated? How is it taken into effect? Here we go, verse 8. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. This covenant was inaugurated with blood. But here's the thing, Moses as a mediator, Moses is the mediator. He brings the word of God. He bring, here's the covenant God wants to make with you. But blood, a death, has to take place for this to be inaugurated and take effect. So whose blood, and, oh, the Mosaic covenant, the first covenant, what death took place and what blood was shed? The animals, right? For the animals. Let's look at verse, let's go back to Hebrews verse 19, okay? I'll pull this up a little bit. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves, the goats, water with scarlet wool, hyssop, sprinkled both itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. All right? Verse 21. In the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood, and according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So blood is shed, and then he goes to the altar, sprinkles it, smears it. Then he also goes to the people. Remember the, t- the basins? One is for the altar and all that. One is for the people. What the text tells us here, and in, in several places too, we've already noticed that one of the things that blood would do was purify. So, as Moses gathers this this blood, gets a hyssop branch, puts it within there, uh, as Mark talked about what the hyssop branch was this, this this thick type of thing, it could take up blood, and he the people standing out, and he would sprinkle them all right, and cast blood out upon them and we've talked about this before, but why is that important? Well, one of the reasons is is the purification. it purified the altar, okay, and it also purified the people, it set them apart. For this covenant, okay? It, it, it made them clean in that sense for the covenant. Even though it was a temporary, we see, but it set them apart and there's the purification. Because this is what he even says in the text, does he not? Likewise with blood, the tabernacle and all the vessels. And verse 22, according to law, almost all things are purified with blood. So they would be set apart. There was a purification to it. Also, we also see it reminded them if blood had been shed, how did they get that blood? Something died. So it's a reminder not only that there's purification that takes place, as the people of God, they were holy, they are set apart, they are the nation of Israel and the Mosaic Covenant, but it also reminds them that it took blood to do this. Something died and died in their place and blood was shed to remind them something had died, but it also reminded them specifically in the Old Testament what they would call a covenant breaker. Remember we just read in Exodus in two different times? What was their response when God said, I want you to do this? What did they say? We'll do it. We'll do it. Did they do it? (laughs) So guess what? The curses should fall upon them, right? Is it not numbers? There's this mountain of all the curses that God says if you follow and do. And there's the mountain of blessing, these two mountains he points to. Well, they kept... They kept choosing the curses. So there was there would be famines, there would be locusts. I mean, read the prophet Joel, right? Locusts would come in and eat. Armies come in and do all of that type of stuff. It also reminded them of the consequences of breaking covenant is death. There's a curse in breaking the covenant. So we're in Hebrews. We fast forward and then there's a new covenant. And all of a sudden, as we just saw up here, there's no longer Moses, but there's a different mediator who shows up. And who is that mediator? Jesus. And now there's a new covenant. It says, now this law is going to be written on hearts and minds. Their sins are going to be forgiven them, and I'm not going to remember their sins. I'm going to know me them, they're going to know me, where I don't have to go to the person in the new covenant and say, Mark, you need to know Jesus. Why? Mark knows Jesus. He's regenerate, he's a member of that covenant. That's a good news covenant. Well, guess what? According to Hebrews, it has to take place in that, or that new covenant it has to be inaugurated with blood. Yeah, we see the blood there. So Jesus dying, all right, on Calvary, we see that through the shedding of his blood in the new covenant. And think about this for a moment: that you and I can be purified and cleansed, and our penalty is paid for. So think about those things, realities we see in the Old Testament. We see fulfilled that are for eternity in Jesus. And we sing about it, right? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Why, why, why do we sing that? Because the New Covenant has been inaugurated through the blood of Christ and now in Christ, washed in His blood, you are purified. And your conscience is purified. You are cleansed. Your sins are forgiven. And the penalty of death that would come upon a covenant, the curses, can't come upon this covenant. Why? Jesus' blood. Jesus died. So Jesus fulfills the demands of the law and the demands of a covenant. He forgives our sin. He He washes us clean of sins. He redeems us by His blood so you and I don't have a penalty before God evermore and we are separated, cleansed, and holy, redeemed, and adopted in the new covenant and in the family of God because of the better mediator, the better sacrifice that Jesus did. So it means something when we sing about the blood and we preach the blood and we teach the blood and we talk about the blood because it reminds us of who stood in our place condemned so that you and I now are reconciled the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's why when you hold those cups once a month and you representing the broken body and the shed blood of the new covenant, that's what Christ has done for us. And, and, and catch this, what type of inheritance has been given to us now? Temporary? It's for eternity. For eternity. So yes, the Lord's Supper is special to us. And of course, the gospel. The gospel is good for us. Any questions? Any questions? I, I know I cut. sometimes I run a little bit faster than I probably should <laughs> doing that. I know that's a lot to cover in about, you know, five or six verses on that. But um but next time we're together next week we will finish out the chapter because he's going to deal specifically with the sacrifice. And this one we see that we had we needed a mediator, and the mediator had to die. There had to be the shedding of blood. Because um, we see there that last verse of 22, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There had to be a death, all right? And animals, as good as they may have been for a season, they're not good enough to save us and redeem us for eternity. But Christ can, and he does. Um, some some prayer items. Um, I don't know, many of you have probably seen on Facebook today